Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories that people tell. Stories of leadership, career choices, company ideas, and team building. My inspiration for starting the What Fuels You podcast came from being curious about people's lives and wanting to help share their stories. What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Dan Shapiro, our guest today on the What Fuels You podcast, is a four-time founder CEO, author, investor, husband, and father. He's sold two software companies, created the best-selling board game in Kickstarter's history, Robot Turtles, and now is focusing his efforts on building Glowforge, the iconic 3D laser printer company founded in 2014, set a record for the biggest 30-day crowdfunding campaign, and has raised over $70 million in funding. Welcome, Dan. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, you're so welcome. So nobody can see us, but we're, we've turned down the lights and uh, we've taken off like layers because we're we're sweating in here. It's an impressive combination recording studio and sauna that yes, you've got going we're, on. We're, we're schwitzing in here. It's good. So um, I'm going to try to go fast, fast, fast. Um, we're going to start with rapid fire. You ready? Oh, my gosh. All right. There's Let's try this. There's a good scoop on, the, on, on you on the internet. So I got, oh, no. I am excited. Um, what's your DJ name? Uh, uh, the DJ company I built in college was called Lasers by Fifi. No, but what's your DJ name? I was just DJ Dan. DJ Fifi? <laughs> it was just DJ Dan. DJ Dan, I like it. What was your favorite game as a child? Um, I desperately tried to get my parents to play Monopoly and Risk with oh, me. I love and I Monopoly. get what I deserve because now my kids desperately try to get me to play those games with them. <laughs> yeah. Um, motto you live by. I don't have one. Yeah. I, in reading about you, like, I felt like you were something in the, like, show up. Like, live life. Like, 100%. Those are great advice. I don't know. I, I should take that. That's I don't a... <laughs> know. Like, you just seem like you're a person who, like, takes takes life uh, by the you-know-what. <laughs> yeah. Person you'd most like to have dinner with? Uh, I mean, my family. Yes. Uh, and... Um, person i haven't had dinner you who don't I most necessarily like to have, have access with? to yeah yeah uh let's see there are a bunch of entrepreneurs i really admire who i'd love to um some of them for show like i, I just love to see elon musk because he's musk. crazy I, yeah. i'm not an admirer of his per se yeah but i am fascinated by the mixture of contradictions that he is yeah um uh, but, you know, somebody I admire on the flip side, um, actually, uh, Jane Park, I've had dinner with and would love to have dinner with again. We can make that happen. Um, Jane, are you listening? She's been on the podcast. <laughs> I know, I, I know. I love Jane. Uh, uh, and then uh, the, her name's escaping me, but the founder of Spanx is somebody whose career I've, oh, I've followed. Oh, um, I just think it's incredible. Yeah. Uh, yes. I love her. She's amazing. You have to listen to that podcast on how I built this. Uh, I will Sarah Blakely. Yep. And she's also been on Shark Tank. Oh my yeah, gosh. She's killer. That's a show. She is. And her husband's amazing too. Jesse, whatever his name is. Um, amazing. If there was a movie about your life, what would it be called? Uh, 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 <laughs> what's next? Uh, <laughs> oh, I like why, that. Why the hell are you doing that? Uh, <laughs> why the hell are you doing that? Well, I have to say, like, um, you know, we're getting to know each other real time on the podcast, but in researching you and learning about you for the podcast, um, you have done a lot of shit. 
Like, especially for how young you are, right? 40, 44 years young. Yeah. 44 years young. It's more like 65. And most 65-year-olds haven't even touched the surface of what you've done. Um, what what kind of drove you when you were a kid? Uh, when I was a kid, I thought I was going to be a physicist or a patent lawyer because I liked <laughs> to make stuff and argue. And I had no idea of how those things would come together otherwise. How old were you when you realized what a patent lawyer is? Like, uh, who even knows what that is? <laughs> yeah, I read some book on patents when I was in like grade school. And I was pretty sure I was going to do like patent lawyer and then somehow going to go into politics and be like a judge or something. I had some sort of uh, some sort of idea about that. Yeah. Um, but uh uh, but my parents are both professors. Oh, okay. And, where where did you grow up? Uh, I, so until I was 12, we lived in Fargo, North, North Dakota. And uh, when I was 12, we moved to Portland, Oregon. So I spent okay. most of my formative years there. Can you do a Fargo accent? Uh, you know, it's mostly gone, but um, it's Fargo. apparently... Fargo or something. When we moved to uh, Portland, my mom uh, told me that I couldn't say, yeah, sure, you betcha, and, and don't you know... And and I was like, why not? She's like, nobody's gonna understand what you mean. And yeah, sure, <laughs> you betcha. That's and, uh, awesome. And she was trying to like deprogram me and not have me be embarrassed on my first day of junior high. Yeah. So they were both professors, so clearly uh, academics. And yeah. um, you have siblings. I do. And and if you did that, like you know, Mendel crossbreeding peas and figuring out how genetics worked, and he's like, so you have the the one and the other. My mom is a professor of speech and communications. My dad is a professor of computer science. And so the th I have two brothers, and we are – my youngest brother is an economist at, um, at UC Berkeley and a professor, took on the family profession. Uh, my middle brother is the host of All Things Considered on NPR. So he took after – very much after mom. So you have dad and mom. And I'm doing like tech and communications and I'm yes. kind of like the big mashup in the middle. You're definitely tech. I mean we're going to get into that. But you've had your fair share of success in the tech Yeah, but I, I don't actually like solve technical problems very much anymore. <laughs> that's, yeah. That's been long gone. I rely much more on what I learned from my mom on a day-to-day -day basis than oh, what I learned from my dad. Interesting. What was your driver at the time when you were little? You know, a little bit of everything. Um uh, I was excited about leaving a mark on the world. I was excited about hard, solving hard problems. I was excited about um, about doing something different and and unusual. Like I didn't even know what engineering was in school as a profession, but I majored in engineering when I was like, oh, I don't have to do science experiments with the equipment. I can build the equipment. That sounds like more fun. Yeah. And then uh, I my first job out of school was a program manager at Microsoft, and I was like, wait, I can actually like go straight from school into figuring out what work to do yeah. and skip over the part where I have to do the work. <laughs> that sounds exciting. But you exciting. went to Harvey Met. I mean, obviously you were STEM focused. I mean. Yeah, I uh, got an engineering degree there, but they have a really rich program where a third of your studies are in things other than your major. So I spent a lot of time at Claremont McKenna College. Um, I did a minor in political science, worked with a professor there named Jack Pitney, who's still on the news all the time. Um, and it was interesting because I'd, I'd grown up in a very sort of, uh, you know, intellectual liberal environment. And Jack Pitney was the first uh, conservative I met who was far better versed and smarter than I was. And uh, and so it was just a fascinating growing experience through college, getting this sort of wider degree mm -hmm. of perspectives. And Microsoft, did they come on campus and do a recruiting tour and you kind of went through the loop there? That was exactly it. I they were my, I wasn't planning to interview. I was planning to go be an electrical engineer. And, uh, and they came on site. And a friend of my dad said, 
Well, you just just show up for the interview for practice. He yeah. was at Microsoft. He, a professor had gone to Microsoft. And I was like, all right, that's good. I'll go for practice. And then they invited to fly me out. And I said, uh, truth, truthfully said to the recruiter, hey, look, I just did the interview for practice. I'm not interested in the job. <laughs> and she that's said, awesome. hey, look, your family's in Portland, right? And I was like, oh, yeah. She, she'd done her homework. And she's like, um, why don't you come up to Seattle and I will set you up with a rental car for the whole weekend so you can drive down to Portland, hang out, and I will fly you back home out of Portland. And I'm Where's like, this recruiter now? I need to get her. I, yeah, she I, sounds brilliant. Uh, she's retired. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and I was like, well, that's a pretty, I'm like, I'm not, I'm being honest, right? Like, I, I don't really want this job. She's like, yeah, no, that's What did fine. you think you wanted? Electrical engineering? Yeah. But like, um, were you thinking some big company? No, a uh, consulting firm that would do lots of little stuff. Oh, okay. And like a different problem every day. That yeah. sounded interesting. Um, and I had this idea. So when I was in college, I had this DJ business, but it didn't start as a what DJ kind of music? business. Whatever people would pay us to play. Yeah. What kind of music do you like? At the time I went to school, I owned two CDs and one of them was Cats. Oh. <laughs> so I had like cool. no taste in music. I thought you were saying Cat Stevens. But no, 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 Cats? no. Cats like the musical. Meow? Oh my God, I fell yeah. asleep in that one. And, uh, and so I that showed up hilarious. and I was like, I don't know anything about music, but a friend and I started building laser displays, like Pink Floyd the Wall, you yes. know, shining lasers at the yes. wall. Yes. We started selling them on the early internet. And then people said, hey, I'll pay you 50 bucks to do that at the party. And then they were like, I'll pay you another 150 bucks if you play some music. And so literally took my savings, went and bought one party's worth of music, uh, or split the cost of it with my friend, DJed one party, took the, the, the dollars from that to buy everything that people had requested that we didn't have. And this is how we sort of bootstrapped a DJ business with no taste or skill. This is so brilliant. I'm sure you've talked about this before, but this is brilliant. I, I don't know I've actually shared that tidbit right I there I think before. it's actually perfect because it's such a metaphor for like building a business. You're like, let me just find solve a problem. Right? That was it. And you were it was, solving a problem. I started out with these lasers that were like scavenged from photocopiers and from the wood lumber industry. And that is great. one thing led to another. That is great. So a program manager at Microsoft, what does that person do? Yeah. Uh, I, the um, So I worked on like Windows 98 and Windows XP and Windows 2000. And I worked with Intel to coordinate these big like hardware initiatives for new kinds of things like USB and 1394. And, uh, and then I worked on the user interface team. So I was responsible for like the way that the Explorer bar worked, I think, and the device manager and some other chunks of Windows. And so it was things like looking at people using the product and going and meeting with the uh, Library of Congress and learning how they use Windows mm. and figuring out how we could build a better product for them. Interesting. Uh, and then working with the engineers to go build specs and design And was that software. something that was a good foundation for you? It was great. What and brought also, you to Seattle? So selfishly, we're happy you're yeah, here. Yeah, and it was, it was amazing for five years. And thank goodness I left when I did because um, I think big company skills and small startup skills are really different. And I got to learn at an amazing rate for five years. But um, but then I got to go start learning what startups were like. And mm -hmm. ultimately, that's been a, a better home for me. Yeah. And one I've enjoyed more. How did you transition into startup world? A couple questions for you. One, how did you do that? But two, are you attracted to candidates that you see out of Microsoft? Or do you get a red flag in your mind when you mm -hmm. see them? Neither. Not attracted nor red flag. Um, I'd say anybody who spent more than five years at a big company, any big company, is a yellow flag. Um, just because there's a set of skills that you learn and then there's a set of habits that you ingrain. 
And a lot of the learning happens during that first two to five years, and a lot of the ingraining happens after that. And so somebody who's learned the best of what a big company has to offer is fantastic. Somebody who only thinks about that way of solving problems um, is a bigger investment to make that person successful. And yeah. they, might, they might not be at a start. Well, and to just see if they can think differently, think exactly. outside the box, think for themselves. Well, yeah. and, and it's not even just that because you see all that at a big company. But the perspective of, um, hey, if you mess this up, then the whole company suffers as opposed to if you mess this up, then somebody's going to clean up your mess. Or the measure of success is whether or not you actually help a customer, not the measure of a success is your review at the at the end of the quarter. Yes. Um, the you know the idea that um, your your goal is to not create risk versus your goal is to um, make something amazing happen. There's just really different priorities at a big yeah. company than a, than a small company, and uh, and it's different in every group. Like uh, I, I would joke that at a big company, the job of PR is to avoid press. Like it's really just controlling the message. Yeah. And it's fine Damage if you don't, control. Right. It's fine if you don't get an article. The important thing is that anything you get is tightly, tightly controlled. Where at a small company, the goal is just to get attention. And you're a lot less worried about, oh, my gosh, could this be spun the wrong way? You're a lot more worried about nobody's ever heard of us. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And especially um, we're going off into the recruiting tangent a little bit, but especially because that presents a difficult challenge when you're trying to recruit and people are like, glow who, you know, versus, hey, it's Microsoft. And it's like, I either do or don't want to work at Microsoft. I've already got an idea about it. A lot of people have heard of Glowforge. But when you first start a startup, it's it's hard. It's true. And it's we're, hard to we're, get the amplification. We're 80 people now. We are constantly trying to bring in great folks. Yeah. And and I think of it very much from why is somebody going to pay attention to us as compared to anybody else? Mm-hmm. And we've really like, we, we kind of boiled it down to two things. People are excited about Glowforge as opposed to any other tech company that's solving interesting problems in, you know, in Seattle. Yeah. Um, people are attracted because of, um, because of our culture. We've managed to build a really diverse and welcoming and wonderful culture. Our company's half women, 20% people underrepresented in tech. We've worked really hard to, to make that happen. We Thank continue, you. continue Thank you to work really that. hard because, yeah, it's not just the hiring, but then it's making people feel included and p- making people feel welcome and, um, and building an inclusive environment. Mm-hmm. And then on the other side, it's the product. We're like circa 2019 versus I want to go back to Microsoft. Like I want to know how, how you even got to Glowforge. Oh, yeah. But before we go there, tell us a, what is Glowforge because it's super freaking cool. So we make this uh, this device. It's a 3D laser printer or traditionally a CNC laser cutter engraver. That's the industrial tool that we hit with a shrink ray and made beautiful to, to go create the product. Uh, and it, it's... <laughs> the the thing I never say about it and shouldn't say about it is, remember all the things people said 3D printers were? Well, it's really like that. It's really the magical box that can print beautiful things at the push of a button. So you put in a piece of material. could be leather. could be stone. could be wood. Chocolate. Acrylic, chocolate. Uh, and you take a photo. You take a PDF. You take, um, take your favorite design software, which could be anything from... CAD software to to um, Photoshop to PowerPoint or Google Slides, like doesn't matter, and take that design, drop it in this visual web uh, interface, drop it on the material and push the button and beautiful stuff comes out. And I brought um, visual aids slash gifts oh, so I can show you I love you, here. you. I thought it was going to be chocolate. This right here <gasps> oh my gosh. is a coffee sleeve. You guys cannot see this. I wish we, I'm going to actually put this when I put the podcast up. I love this. So that's like oh 10 minutes from, oh my gosh, I'm going to print something to, okay, here it Wait, is. Wait, I, okay, so this is, is this leather? 
It is. So I have a leather uh, coffee sleeve that's got our logo on it and my name. And you roll. And thank, thank you. you. This and, is amazing. And, you know, I'd love to say I spent hours on it. But it's, you pushed a button. It's 10 minutes. You pushed a button. So who's the consumer? Uh, Aside from me. <laughs> but wait, before we go there. Yes. Then oh, is it another Number gift? two. Yeah. And this, this is this <gasps> is bubble wrap. So there's great audio when you unwrap it. Is this jewelry? <laughs> Just unwrap it right in front of the microphone. Oh, it's going to sound. Okay. It's going to sound exciting. It is. Ex- I, I didn't plan that, but you, you know. Did plan it. This is like an ex- an incredibly exciting podcast. Not that others haven't been, but <gasps> oh my god! Wait, can, how much? Are, how much is the? How much is the printer? <laughs> is it expensive? So, I need one. So right now you can go to glowforge.com. Okay. And because we just launched in Canada this morning, we have free shipping in the U.S. and Canada on our Plus and Pro units. So you can take a piece of slate just like that slate tile you've got in front of you, drag your logo onto it, hit the print button, and that's about six minutes okay. to have your, your logo. And how much is that going to cost slate. me? So uh, it starts at $2,500. Oh, that's such a deal. Because here's the deal. So for the listeners, I'm now holding a, this is what material? A uh, slate. I'm holding a slate, um, basically coaster, with fuel talent on it. And it's beautiful. And it's cool. And it looks very high-end and expensive. And I could use this as marketing. Yeah. You can go buy a four or an eight-pack of those for uh, $11 on Amazon, but then you go put your logo on it, and then it's something incredible and special and unique. And you have your corporate identity and something really wonderful that's so is just that your cus- you. is that your consumer mostly? Is you're going B2B? No. It's actually 80% of these go into homes. Okay. So yeah, because this is cool. These. And like creative people, I, I, I'm not uh-huh. one of them. This is cool. But you don't need to be, right? We gave this this. How did you come up with this? Sleeve. Like, who's the brainchild? Is this you? And you have a co-founder, right? I do. Um, and uh, two co-founders. I'm so excited. Uh, <laughs> I'm, like, literally, like, really excited. Thank it's you. It's so much fun. It is so much fun to get Beyond. to make things that people get to touch My and kids are going to freak out. And love. Uh, and uh, so, oh, my gosh, how did it come about? Um, it's hard. Because then everything is sort of disconnected to the thing before, but sort of driven by it. Because this was born out of the previous project I did, the board game Robot Turtles. Yes, which we, I talked about in the intro, but we haven't even talked about. We haven't even talked this about This could be like a three, maybe five-hour podcast. But, uh, but you know, like I said, I brought visual aids. Here we go. So here's a copy of Robot Turtles. I This is me. I have this at my house, by the way. Oh, my gosh. I, I, but I have a – but well, hold on. You. No, I bought it, and I'm also going to – I have a birthday party coming up. I'd like to give this to our, like, dear, dear friend's little boy who's turning – oh, my God, this is amazing. Four and up. Perfect. He's, he's five. Yeah. Oh, spot on. Yes, oh, re-gift, please. Wait, this is amazing. Robot Turtles. Okay. But hold on. Back up. So Robot Turtles eventually birthed the idea for, for Glowforge? So here's what went down. I sold my previous company – Company number two, okay. SparkBuy, to okay. Google. Yes. I took, after working there for a couple of years in this weird position, I was the CEO of a wholly owned subsidiary. I was reporting to the VP of product of ad products there. Um, and after two years, I took a leave of absence because I had promised a book to O'Reilly like three years before. And by promised, I mean they actually gave me a cash advance and, and they had not delivered the book. So I said I was going to leave to go work on the book. And, you know, wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't bring a copy for you. Oh, my God. You are this. Who are you? 
Hot Seat is the name of this book that I'm holding, the Startup CEO Guidebook. Every one of my clients, should I just, I'm going to start to give this. And this a number is... of your clients are in there. I think oh, I'm a sure. couple of folks you've had on the podcast. And, oh, uh, I can't wait. Uh, their stories are in there because I really, it's, uh, it's the, the, I put a couple stories in there that were stories I had that other people couldn't tell, like, what does it mean to be acquired by Glowforge or, uh, sorry, to be acquired by Google or how I got funding for Glowforge. Um, But then a lot of stories from amazing folks in the community like Sandy Lynn, uh, who the dinner we met at, Sandy was there, um, how she got her company off the ground and uh, and those stories of how they came to be or how... um, uh, Aldis, I think it was, the, or Vizio, the company that uh, was founded in Seattle, went public, was acquired by Microsoft. And I asked the CEO, why did you sell the company to Microsoft? And he said, so I could do another startup. And I was like, are you going to get in trouble for telling me that? <laughs> and he said, I don't know, but it's the truth. So it's in the book. <laughs> well, so yeah, I should have probably read this book before. I mean, it makes it even more fun to interview you without having read it, but I'm excited to read this. No, no worries. I just wrote one book. Um, but I took the leave, the, the leave of absence to write the book and then was just messing around with my kids. And they were, uh, tw- I have twins, boy and a girl. They were mm-hmm. four at the time. And, and how old are they now? Uh, they're 10. They're, they're 10. finishing up fourth grade. I can't yeah. believe it. Uh, so I, I, uh, was working on the book, but I also was messing around with my kids and came up with this idea for this board game where the idea was that the kids were the programmers and what do programmers do? They boss around computers and what do kids love to do more than anything else at age four boss around their parents. So in the board game, the parents are the computer and the kids boss you around by laying down cards that make you do things. And, uh, and so I had this kind of harebrained idea and then like, weird stuff. A friend had asked me to help him pitch a TV show that was, um, that had some elements of Kickstarter and be sort of the startup consultant. So I was helping him do that. And, uh, and so we pitched like Bruckheimer pictures and Sony, and that was fascinating. And, uh, and I thought, Oh man, I sh- I've done angel funding. I've done, um, I've done, you know, bootstrapping. I've raised a bunch of venture money, but I've never crowdfunded. That's kind of new. And 2014 was the that was like a, that was the thing, yeah. So I was like, I'm going to try crowdfunding this crazy little game, and if enough people are interested, then I can do a production run. Um, I can do a production run of a thousand units. Fun fact: it costs the same to make uh, just about the same to make a thousand units and five thousand units because once they spin up the presses, they you basically might as just well. they just yeah. <laughs> so so I was like, it, it costs like four times as much to make one fifth as many units, and I'm like, yeah. Uh, per, per unit. Yeah. Uh, but I was like, if I can get 1,000, then I got the artist. So I put it together and it blew up. And at the time, it was the best selling board game in Kickstarter history. It has since been roundly trounced. How by, much did you raise? Uh, it was, so it wasn't the dollars. We didn't have the dollar oh. lead, but we had the number of backers. We had 25,000 oh. backers, Holy which is more than smokes. any other game. Or uh, 20,000? 20,000. That's right. I ordered 25,000 copies, but wow. about 20,000 backers. Um, and because the world is small, the guy who I was helping pitch the TV show, um, who helped me create the Kickstarter, later smashed my record to bits with the game Exploding Kittens, which is now the most backed game or the most backed anything in Kickstarter history. What I love is that you've got these ideas and then you just go do them. A lot of people have ideas and then they just kind of tuck them away. Most of them are terrible and where, fail. Where do you well? That's okay. <laughs> have you had failures? Oh, Lord. So many failures. Uh, and, uh, oh, and just to complete the thought, yeah. it was prototyping for Robot Turtles that I wound oh, up yeah, with yeah, this yeah. $11,000 industrial carbon dioxide cutting laser imported directly from a factory in China and installed in my garage, which was totally insane. 
but also delightful. And after weeks of fighting with it to get it to do anything, said, oh my gosh, this is at its core, this technology is the dream. I can actually sketch something out. My kids can sketch something out. My friends can sketch something out or take a design or something and hit print and something beautiful comes out. Everybody should have access to this. Yeah. And are there competitors? You know, there are a bunch of companies that sell these industrial laser cutter engravers. Um, and then there's a number of desktop models that are like ten to $20,000. Uh, there's a couple of like you can import directly from China. And there's a couple of folks who are just starting to come up with desktop models around this. I don't think anybody's quite got this notion of like something beautiful you can put on your desktop. Mm -hmm. You can have up and running in 30 minutes. And you need zero technical skills to get it running. Uh, people, one of our customers was like, yeah, I got a smart TV and a Glowforge at the same time. And I still haven't figured out the damn smart TV, Yeah, but I was holding my first print in less than half an hour. That's right. Really, um, that's but amazing. But at the same time, it scales from there up until like working engineers who are doing full on prototyping and quick turn like processes on an assembly line because the technology is fast and simple and it makes it incredibly quick to go from, I have an idea, I'm trying it out. I've got another idea, I'm trying that out. And you can do five iterations of a hardware product in the course of an afternoon with the same technology that lets somebody who's never used CAD software before sketch out a piece of jewelry and then print it and go sell it in the corner market and make that into a business with no technical skills whatsoever. But how did you learn how to do this? Oh, man. <laughs> like, right? Yeah. <laughs> how the did you know is, what you were doing? I didn't and I have no right to be starting a hardware company. I have no right to be authoring a book. I have no right to be being a board game designer. The board game and the book, I think, seem not easier, but seem like, you know, you'd know where to start a little bit. Like this seems like it's about people and testing people, but this, but hardware, I don't know. It's out of this world kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, my life has been one huge stack of privilege from coming from upper middle class parents who valued education and we're in public schools, but we are in the best public schools. Uh, and then put me on track to a college that was a perfect fit for my interests and passion and learning style. Harvey Mudd uh, has uh, uh, less than a thousand students. Um, and uh, really focuses on the sort of multidisciplinary education and gave me enough room to go and like create a business and think about entrepreneurship on top of everything else. And then, uh, you know, being able to graduate and having all the privilege that comes from being a white guy in tech in the late 90s uh, and being able to walk right into this job at Microsoft because of a friend of my dad had sort of prodded me in the right direction. And then coming out with this sort of Microsoft pedigree on the resume and going into a startup mm -hmm. and then being able to use that to raise money to start my own company and all these things. I, I know people who've struggled for years to publish a board game and get anybody to pay attention. And you know, everything builds on everything else. It was easy for me to fund Glowforge because I had had all these past successes. It was easy for me to get attention for Robot Turtles because it did well on Kickstarter. It did well on Kickstarter because I could get a bunch of people's attention because of what I'd done before and so on and so on. And I love that. I mean, I, I appreciate it. And I, I think it's very humble and honorable that you're um, kind of crediting a lot of the success to privilege. But a lot of people are gifted privilege, and they don't know what to do with it, and they don't create opportunity for others, and they don't um, put themselves in vulnerable positions to just kind of be uncomfortable and do things that you've never done before. And it seems like it's just kind of in your DNA. 
you know, you're just going to probably continue to do things like after, you know, Glowforge isn't the end. I was pretty professionally selfish for a good decade or, or two in my career. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, it was funny because when I did um, the Robot Turtles, a friend of mine said, okay, Dan, so what's the angle on this one? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, you know me pretty well. Because <laughs> everything, like, if I was reading a book, it was because it might help with my day job. If I was going to a networking event, it was because I wanted to go and understand. Like, you know, you were I, driven. Yeah, I, I had true friends and things that I would do just for fun. But outside of a very small set of things, everything had kind of an angle. Mm-hmm. And, the and what was, was your what were you driven by, like, in, in your adult life? Uh, is there a is there a goal? You know, it started out as building success, and then it became stability for my family. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and but what is when you say success? Like um, people people validate me and know who I am, or yeah, I mean all the you know sort of low dirty metrics that make our you know animal brains feel good. People recognize you. People appreciate what you've done. Um, the work that you've done in, impacts other people, um, but. Uh, but not in any sort of way that was, you know, um, particularly thoughtful or or impactful. In a, I tried to avoid doing bad things when mm-hmm. I graduated. I said I don't want people to die because I'm good at my job, and I don't want people to die because I'm bad at my job. So I don't want to do military or medical, mm. <laughs> and anything else is fine. Mm. Uh, and uh, and then Robot Turtles was the first time that I was like, no, I actually don't have an angle on this. This was delightful, and it made my kids happy, and I think it could actually make a lot of people happy. And I think it's a thing that's missing from the world, a way that that people can be exposed to computers in a way that isn't transactional and like you have to learn to program to be successful, but a way that says, I don't care if you want to be a ballerina or a restaurateur or anything else, computers should work for you. You should look at computers as a tool to serve you throughout your life, not as a thing you have to learn or something that's intimidating and othering. The whole point of the game is to take computers for granted not to make them this big, scary thing that you have to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, and to think of a computer as this, like, oh, you boss it around. It's dumb and you're the smart one. That's how I want people to think about computers and resources. And then Glowforge was all about going, oh, my gosh, like one of the things in this modern era, the ability to create something that didn't exist before is one of the most powerful things that you can bring to the world to help um, to help accomplish your goals. And getting an engineering degree gave me this tremendous unfair advantage in that. There is, uh, in this world, the ability to go create things is unevenly distributed and unfairly distributed. And the notion that I might be able to create the tool that lets people create who couldn't create before or lets people take something that they could only do by hand, one off, two off, and turn it into thousands to make mm-hmm. it their business, to make it their job, to make it their um, – to elevate that into something that is more than just a pastime if they want to. Yeah. Or to say, gosh, I always want to have a wood shop and I always want to play around with leather craft and I always want to do paper cutting. But those are all different tools and different skills. With one tool, I can do all of them. That's super exciting to me. How, how long has it been available? So we did our crowdfunding campaign in 2015. Mm-hmm. It still holds the record for the most backed anything ever, 30-day campaign. And uh, and then we started- What do you attribute that to? Peak crowdfunding? No. Uh, <laughs> there, there is some degree of cyclicality to that, and yeah. we definitely hit sort of the right thing at the right time. Um, but this was something that never existed before. And people saw it and said- I see a version of myself in that product that mm-hmm. I like. And how long has it been better. available? 
So we started shipping in 2018, mm -hmm. uh, or sorry, in 2017 to pre-order customers, and we launched last year. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've grown two and a half times in the last nine months. Like our Good sales have been just amazing. And are there stories that make their way to you that are like, oh, this is what I envisioned when I created this? Like, it, wow, I've this person's on the map now in a business, or... it blows my mind every day. I wake up here. I'm going to do something kind of crazy. I'm just going to look right now at Instagram, okay. the GlowForge hashtag, and I'm going to tell you what I see. Okay. Because it's not the, there was this one thing or I saw this other thing. It is every morning I wake up and I look at what people have unlocked with this product we've created. And I just, my jaw drops open fresh again each day. I'm going so, to follow it on Insta also. All right. So I'm just going to look right here. And yeah. let's look at this. Warful Studios. Oh. It looks like she is using her oh, wow. forge to go create this jewelry business. So that's amazing. So I'm looking at, um, what is that? So this is, this is uh, earrings that look like maybe oh, wow. hops or leaves or artichokes or something. That's really cool. And the next so she had to sketch at, it and then the printer... Sketch it, put in a piece of wood or leather. I That's can't, incredible. I can't see what she used to go create that. And it, and it that looks like card, leather. I think she also created the backing. Yeah. Wow, this is incredible. Okay, so that that's must the be first rewarding thing. for you. And this is real time, right? Like, yeah, this, this is, is right just now. posted. Yeah. Um, here's somebody end grain cutting board. Yeah, I was going to say, is that a cheese cutting, like one of those really high end boards? Yeah, look at that. How big are the things that people can print? So the Glowforge Plus. And basic can print up to um, 19 inches by 11 inches. Okay. Uh, and then you can create enormous things. Like I built a dollhouse that's like four feet tall, but just out of small panels. Then the Glowforge Pro, our top end $6,000 model, can print 20 inches wide by as long as you want because it has slots in the front wow. and back. So you can print and then slide through and then print some more and print some more. So you can print enormous things like furniture. Holy crap. And so... Is there one customer who's ordered multiple printers? Oh, my gosh. Like, UW has a dozen. We have customers who um, – there's a customer named Ryan in Seattle who runs a jewelry business. And I don't remember if he's bought multiple, but um, but we just did a video interview of him. He uh, quit his job to become a full-time entrepreneur slash stay-at-home dad and makes his living selling gorgeous jewelry um, at local markets and crafts fairs and the like all around Seattle. Uh, yeah. Light razor designs. If you're at any so of the so this is a way for people markets. to. I mean, that's the investment that they're making. Obviously, a few other things that they need to invest in, but boom, they're in business. I think it's really it, cool. Like the first computer that my parents got when I was a kid. It's like if you if it, it's it's a thing where a family will look at it and be like, well, you know, mom's going to use it for this entrepreneurial thing, and dad's going to use it to support this hobby, and the kids are going to learn the ability to make things that they hadn't had before, and. We're not entirely – the number one reason people buy a Glowforge when we say, what are you going to print with it? The number one, by far most popular answer is, I don't know, and number two is everything. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> How would you come up with the name? Uh, well, that was a funny story. Um, we had a working name that I just made up on the way home, and then I crowdsourced a list of 500 names – uh, on Mechanical Turk, I think it was, and then had, ran a survey on Mechanical Turk where we winnowed it down to a smaller list and then, you know, asked questions like, uh, what do you think this means and what do you think that this this word, you know, represents and what does it make you think of and did all these surveys and, and finally came down um, to the winning name after all that was the placeholder name, which was Glowforge, oh. <laughs> which was 
which just came about because I was going, well, light and making things. Yeah, glow. And, and I like wanted a name. Strength. And I wanted a name that was that had some um, some sense of sort of the traditional uh, woodworking and and crafting, and also a sense of uh, woodworking and crafting and paper cutting and uh, and stonework and that sort of balance. Because I think we've had a long tradition in this com- country of making things, mm-hmm. um, whether it be sewing machines or craft cutters, scissors, art supplies. Uh, and this new idea of the maker movement, um, which has been wonderful in exposing um, a broader array of tools and more people to it, and um, and somewhat negative in that I think it's it's put a spotlight on uh, men makers over women, where mm. people are more likely to identify as a maker if they're a man, but not but they're not more likely to make things. That's just mm. a label that has tended to be a little bit gendered. Um, and, and so I, I feel very conflicted about that title because we are a maker tool, but also that, that word is, uh, somebody once said, maker's a word men invented so they didn't have to call themselves crafters. <laughs> I don't think that's quite fair, but I also think there's a little kernel of truth in there. Hmm. And, so and so at this stage in your... So that, that, oh, that was the glow and yeah, the forge. Yeah, the glow and the forge. Okay. And so at this stage, what's kind of keeping you up at night? Because you talked about some failures. I need to hear about at least one because otherwise I'm going to feel... A little insecure. Like, so many failures. I feel like a loser. <laughs> this guy's incredible. What oh, have I no. done? Uh, the winners get all the press. Yeah. Um, uh, the sorry, but your question wasn't that. Your my question my was, question was um, like today. What are you losing sleep over? Oh, what am I? And losing what are you kind of worried about? Uh, yeah, how do we keep the good times rolling? Right. There's yeah. always twenty things that can go sideways, and even as you succeed, the funny thing about massive success is it feels like constant failure, because even at a very micro level, mm-hmm. everyone's success has has three failures attached to it. So, for example, um, on our growth team, which is launching, uh, you know, any given week. Uh, there's five different ad variations and two videos and this and that and the other. Most of those fail. Like we're lucky if one or two things does better than average. Now, all you have to do is have one or two things. You can have seven failures and you mm-hmm. can have one thing go better and you throw away the seven failures and you double down on the one. And that's yeah. how you grow each week, each month, um, each quarter. Uh, but it, it doesn't make the feeling go away that you failed seven times to find that one success. Right. And, uh, you know, you hire uh, you hire 10 people and they're excited and they're enthusiastic and they love the company. Everything's great. And one person leaves and you're like, oh, my gosh, how did we not do right by that one person? Yes. And, you and, focus on that. It's hard not to. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So um, so what keeps me up at night? All the things that could go wrong, because yeah. when things are going well, that just means it's time for something new to go wrong. Yeah. And when did you feel most successful? Uh, the day we closed a crowdfunding campaign was pretty good. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, uh, day my kids were born on a personal basis oh, was pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, the uh, and then you know lots of shiny spots in the middle, um, but like the micro joys come from people who come up and say like, "I love this culture you built in this company." Um, come from customers who say like, "This product changed my life and let me do things I couldn't do before." And um, come from, you know, going home and my kids saying, uh, let me show you this thing I just did. What do they think that you now they've used, obviously, the product. But what would they have said, like my daddy does before you started Glowforge? Like, yeah, I mean, it was tough when I, before, like, he makes board games. He writes books. That, that was great. And he makes. That was the start of I can explain what I do for yes. a living. <laughs> yeah. See this? See this? Daddy did that. Yeah. 
Um, no, they very much get it. And in fact, so much so that they will ask me about challenges at work very specifically. They're like, how was your day? And I'm like, it was good. And they're like, what well, was good? And I was like, oh, you know, I had a great conversation. Who did you talk to? What did you talk about? And I was like, well, I'm not going to, you know, not going to tell you the name of the people because they'll go to work and they'll know. But, you know, I talked to somebody about this problem. What would you have told them? And they'll be like, I think you should have told them this. Wow. And uh, very much like, you know. You're engaging them. and the... They definitely know do what they do. Do you think either one of them will be entrepreneurs? Yes. But since they're going to listen to this, I'm not going to out like yeah, my, gonna my like... odds on that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad that they're going to listen to it. So before you started all these companies, Antella, SparkBuy, cool names. Tell me about those companies. So you asked how I got into startups. Yeah. And, uh, and you asked about failure. Yeah. So here's a twofer. Okay. Um, I've been at Microsoft for two years. It was the year 2000. Um, people were getting pet food delivery services funded. They are again, for whatever that's <laughs> worth. But like... And everybody was raising venture capital, and the media was full of, like, every stupid idea is getting millions of dollars. It was great for me back then. I was a recruiter. Uh, that was a good time yes. to be a recruiter. Um, In uh, New York and before that, San Francisco, during, like, the crazy boom. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Levi's came about because they were selling jeans to the gold rush, yeah. right? Uh, the um, uh, So I'm sitting here going, well, I'm, you know, every idiot is doing it. I can be an idiot. Uh, and put together a um, a business plan and a co-founder and started pitching. And um, I'll give you the short version, which was we spent oh, probably six months running after it, got absolutely nowhere. It was uh, a total failure. Um, the, the, the sort of bust hadn't really happened yet, so I didn't have that as an excuse. We just failed utterly. And it what was, was the idea? Oh, it's not even worth it. It was a like, massively oh. multiplayer video game. Okay. Uh, you know, in, in 2000. Um, and, uh, and so I wound up spending, uh, all my free time playing other games thinking, well, that's sort of like research, but I wasn't doing research. I was just playing games to, to distract myself. Yeah. Um, uh, didn't really do a good job at work. And my then girlfriend, now wife, one day sat me down and said something like, you have to stop like this, the, your video game playing is destroying everything. You're like you're telling me that work isn't going well. You're miserable all the time. I never see you, um, and so I finally had to quit that cold turkey. But it was a really awful year of my life. Of this is a thing Were anybody can do and everybody can do. Yeah. Oh yeah. And uh, and and I failed at it. Yeah. And then you know this like computer game addiction was a a a uh, salve on a really raw wound. Wow. I mean, I'm reading about therapists who are specializing in video game addiction. Um, and there's a lot of kids who are addicted. Do your kids play video games? Uh, only educational, 30 minutes a day. Yeah. Under pretty, which I worry about too, because it's forbidden fruit. Yeah. Like, you know, I, I have mixed feelings yeah. about that. Yeah, of course. You're like, you can't have it, so they want it. And yeah. when they start to rebel, yeah, no, that makes sense. Uh, but then... Fast forward three years and somebody who I met in the course of doing that said, I joined this startup. You should join it too. It's all us ex-Microsoft people. It's going to be great. And it had all the problems that you might imagine of a company that was composed of big company alumni, but it also had some amazing stuff going on. It was incredibly ambitious. We were building a, a cell phone from the ground up, plastics, operating system, software, everything. And, uh, and I spent, you know, uh, two, three, three years um, at g doing that, and uh, you know, got to got to learn all my lessons on somebody else's dime. 
What, com- what company was that? It was called Wild Seed. Oh, okay. Yes, I saw that you had worked there. I didn't know what that yeah. company. I didn't know much about it. Yeah, we made this weird banana-shaped cell phone uh, upside down, so the keys were on top, so it was easier to text with one hand. Targeted oh. the teenage market with like uh, faceplates that popped on and off and had cartridge like chips in them, so they worked like Nintendo cartridges that you put on a faceplate and you get all this software and games and things with the faceplate. Cool. And what did you do? All the what did you do there? Uh, I came in as a program manager and um, wound up running sort of the product, mm-hmm. uh, software product vision yeah. and direction for that. How did you learn what your, I mean, it sounds like, I mean, you've been CEO, but what's your ninja skill? You know, like. Yeah, the um, the sort of. Like if you were uh, hired at a, yeah, what's your superpower beyond the people side? Because clearly you're good with people, but. Uh, except when I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> except when I'm not. Do you have an asshole side? Oh my gosh! Uh, I should have called some of your employees. It, yeah, yeah. Uh, really? It's it's uh, oblivious. You're like, just, I think you're asshole like, implies a level of like intention. Of intention. Yeah. And it's just I'll look back at myself and I'll be like, "What the heck was I thinking?" Because like, you were just picked up on something knee deep in your thoughts and weren't aware of your. Or because it was somebody who comes from a different background or a different mindset or a different perspective. Um, like it's easy. Uh, it's easy for me to sit across the table from somebody who's two years into their work career and think of that person as a peer um, and, you know, in, in a respectful and sort of way and be like, oh, I'm going to talk to this person like a peer. And um, and that means taking a bunch of stuff for granted. And that means ignoring power and balance. And that means all sorts of other things, which from their perspective would just be horrifying. Like what to me is an offhand suggestion may come to them as a, you know, do this or Directive. the CEO yeah. is going to know about it. Yeah. Um, just one of many ways that, you know, I can, I can put my foot in my mouth and, and, uh, make people's lives terrible if I'm not careful. Um, and do you have a do. coach? Uh, I don't. Have I, you ever had a coach? You know, I've had therapists. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and worked with Does therapists. That, do and, you like that? Uh, it was really helpful. Uh, mm-hmm. when, uh, when I was, um, seeing her and I would do it again in a heartbeat. Um, and, uh, and the coach I think of is like an ongoing relationship and I haven't found somebody who's been the right fit for that yet. Mm-hmm. Um, if I did, I'd do it. I, I would do it in a heartbeat. Um, interviewed a number of folks to do that, but I haven't found somebody who clicked and, you know, interviewed probably four therapists before I found somebody who was the yeah. right fit for that as well. Yeah. As a side note, um, my, my wife's a therapist and she's amazing at what she does. And one of the things we both talked about is the world of therapy is modeled around the first door you walk through is the person you work with for life, uh, or at least for, for a long wait, time. Wait, wait, slow down. What? Say that again. Uh, there isn't really this notion of interviewing therapists for that's uh, a lot of people don't think that that's a thing you should do. When in oh. fact it's so important. Yeah, to find no, a I've I've done that. Fit. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. a lot of people don't feel like they 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 have can. The, yeah, they feel like it's rude. Well, but do you have to pay? And the the economics of it, I was going to yeah. say, right? Like you, because you're paying like two hundred bucks to sit and decide that you don't want to do it again. Yeah, and doing that four times is not within yeah. most people's most people's reach. There's another right. there's another huge piece of privilege there. Can you talk on the to them on the phone and? Some are willing to scoop? and some aren't. Oh, it, it depends on, on their perspective. So huh. um, so no coach, no therapist right now, but you're open to it, which is great. It seems like you're pretty self-aware, I have to say. I mean, I know everything that I know. It, like I'm you know your flaws. blissfully unaware of what I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you seem like a person that if I was working with you, I would feel comfortable just walking in and talking to you. Uh, I have a really strong core that feedback is a gift. Um, not necessarily criticism, but feedback, feedback, yeah. like this is coming from a place of me wanting to help. And, uh, and so I have office hours every week, um, you know, an hour for anybody to come in and, 
and when people do or when people submit questions for you know the company or or grab me in the hallway and say hey this thing's bothering me uh, you know, some of the most sincere thanks I can give is is when I'm like, oh, man, thank you so much for asking that hard question. Uh, because uh, I get sideways, the company gets sideways, we all get sideways when we get yeah. disconnected from truth. And, uh, and, and it's really easy to go through your day without hearing a lot of truth. Absolutely. And it sounds like you've also surrounded yourself with people who aren't afraid to speak up. Because, you know, you have those CEOs that you hear about that just kind of want to surround themselves with yes people. And, it seems like you embrace the opposite. Like, hey, keep me honest. I'll keep you honest, and let's let's just be efficient with feedback. It's hard. I try. You know, one thing I will often get questions from like interview candidates who say, uh, you know, what are your weaknesses, or you know, what's uh, what's the culture like here? And my answer is always like, I will tell you, but man, I'm the last person you should believe about this. Right. I will tell you the culture that I think is here, but it's diluted by the fact that. I tried to make it something. Yeah, it's aspirational. I'm going to miss what I missed. Yes. I always say that, too. I'm like, talk to my team and, and if I'm find out if I'm full of shit because I think it's great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You talked about diversity and inclusion and, and creating that type of culture, and it sounds like you've done an incredible job. How did you do that? Because I get asked all the time. Uh, early on, um, I worked with one of our early employees, uh, Kira, uh, Kira I remember was, Kira. Yeah, Kira's and I remember when amazing. she went there because Kira is one of my favorite oldest candidates. Oh, she yeah. turned down a job through me to take your job. Oh my gosh! And I I've been in touch with that. her, and I just saw her Saturday night. Oh, I love Kira, and she loves incredible. you. Incredible! And she was one of the first people who told me about you. Oh my gosh! Yeah. I've known Kira since I moved to Seattle, um, and she has a, a law degree. And I said, "How do we recruit diverse people without breaking the law?" And it turns out that's tricky. Um, and she wound up spending some time and talked to the um, uh, various state agencies and this and that and the other. And so we put together our first sort of program along this was this um, uh, referral bonus. where We said we will pay $5,000 uh, for anybody who refers a candidate who we hire who's from a background traditionally underrepresented in tech. And that sounds straightforward, but there are so many minds there because um, treating employees differently is prohibited. So we couldn't offer that bonus to our employees. We can only offer it to non-employees who refer folks. Uh, it raised the question of, okay, so um, for example, a, uh, a white guy says, here, this woman of color would be a great candidate. We're like, that's awesome. We want to go talk to that person. And then that person's like, why are you putting me out here for this? I didn't want any part of that. And how are you trying to make money off of me? Um, this didn't happen, but this was our sort of hypothetical what could go wrong. Okay, well, that's a disaster. We, we don't want that to happen. Um, do we want to go say to people, um, how do we know if they're underrepresented in tech? Are we going to try and judge people's backgrounds? And it was like this, no, that's terrible. Uh, so we wound up with a program that we implemented, which is really simple. When we hire somebody, we say to them, um, if you are somebody who, you, who considers themselves underrepresented in tech and there's somebody who referred you here, uh, we'd love to give them this referral bonus. And there's no obligation for them to disclose either of those things or to offer that, but it's something that they can do. And so, you know, that leaves open all sorts of possibilities that they don't tell us about somebody, that somebody claims underrepresented when we're not. And we're like, actually, we don't care. These are employees. We trust them with much bigger things. So let's make it entirely about our new employee and put them 100% in control of this program. Um, and we've been doing that ever since for four years. And that was one of the very first But how things. did you get it out there? How did you put it out to the community or out to people? 
is a blog post. Okay. <laughs> Got a little press pickup. I think GeekWire wrote about it. Okay. Because it was, it was surprising and interesting at the time. Another one of your it's, great interviews with yeah. John and, and, Todd. Uh, and Todd. That one we were just joking. We were like, this is a shit show. We were just all talking on top of each other. But I've gotten great feedback on that podcast. So Sometimes the shit shows are fun, too. <laughs> yes. Um, so, yeah, I like learning about that. And what about your recruiting process? How have you designed that? Yeah. And one of the other things that we decided early on was that everybody who walks through the door is treated exactly the same, which means the only way we could drive diversity was by driving diversity in the top of the funnel. So how do we bring in more diverse candidates? A big piece of that is just, you know, you have to focus your efforts somewhere. So are you going to look at, um, are you going to look at the, the, the marquee colleges or are you going to look at um, historically black colleges? Are you going to look at um, colleges with more diverse enrollment? Uh, when you are um, sifting through a thousand LinkedIn candidates saying, okay, who are the hundred that I'm going to reach out to and ask them to apply? How do I, let's make sure that we're asking a diverse cross section of people to apply. Yeah, it represents the actual community instead of just a, diver, a, a small subset. Exactly. Um, it all came back to the core principle of everybody who walks through the door is interviewed the same way and evaluated against the same standard. Uh, so it was all about creating a diverse set of people walking through the door. And once we did that, everything else followed. I think people can learn a lot from you. You've done podcasts before. A couple. You have a good podcast voice. And you have a lot of cool stuff to say. <laughs> um, but I think that also people can learn from your approach and just learning about how do you even treat people. I'm always consulting on this to CEOs. And I think that while they're well-intentioned, it's really tough to kind of do your job and also prioritize talent acquisition and thinking about who it is and how we're going to make them want to work here, but also make them feel included once they get here. Um, it's, it's a challenge. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, early on, I had a lot of conversations with early employees about um, this diversity and inclusion stuff seems like a lot of work and it seems like it might be slowing us down. Maybe we'd be more effective if we didn't worry about it. Uh, and what I basically said was, trust me, it's going to pay off. And, and it does. And the payoff is once you've built a diverse team, a couple of things happen. One is it's much easier to attract more diverse people. So it stops becoming, oh my gosh, like how are we going to make this work and how are we going to bring in diverse folks? And your pipeline naturally gets more diverse. And the second thing and the awesome thing is suddenly amazing people who you would have an incredibly hard time closing otherwise say, I would love to come work there. And in fact, I'm going to turn down better offers. I'm going to turn down more prestigious nameplates because I want to work at a place where diversity is a value and where it's welcomed. And, you know, the naive person will say, well, there's more, you know, majority people in the world, so I should go target them. But I think the thoughtful, um, the thoughtful recruiters is I don't have to hire the majority of people in the world. I need a cadre of however many, a hundred great people. Mm -hmm. And it's far easier to do that if you're different and if you're special and if you're more attractive. And so if you can become a place that is actually delightful for underrepresented folks to win, that becomes a, a recruiting advantage in Big a really time. significant way. Huge. We've had a number of employees who I'm like, I am, you know, our, our company succeeded because we got them. Mm -hmm. And the reason we got them was because we were a welcoming and diverse and inclusive place. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, I think that now I'm going to ask you my final question. So what fuels you? Oh, gosh. I mean, I wake up every morning and the things I get excited about are I look at what our customers have made, flip through Instagram. 
uh, I get up and um, in about half the mornings I get to hang out with my kids and see them and take them to school and see what's going on there. And, uh, and that's just incredible. And then I get to go into work and deal with genuinely interesting, hard problems. Um, some of which make me happy and some of which make me sad, but which are never, ever boring. Uh, and then I get to come home and, uh, and sometimes cook and I love to cook and almost always have dinner. I usually try to be home for five nights a week, um, for dinner. And so I'll travel at, uh, at most two nights a week, which varies a little bit. Um, and then get to spend, um, some quality time with the kids and with my wife. Um, and then she goes to bed and then I work for another three or four hours until two in the morning and aye finish aye up. Aye. That's not the part that fuels me. That's aye the, aye. that's the finish. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, uh, let's not end on that like note. The, I'm like, there, sleep is a value. There's the, you know, there's the wonderful pieces of every day that, um, that make every bit of the rest of it worthwhile. Yeah. Well, I can feel your gratitude and your, um, creativity and it's pretty contagious. So thank you. Thank you yeah, so much so for fun. having me. So fun. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. And follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You.